Hello everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360, your go-to resource for medical news and clinical updates. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby with Consultant 360. Our guest today is Dr. Christian Sandrock, who is a pulmonary critical care and infectious disease physician and professor of medicine at the University of California, Davis in Sacramento, California. Today, he joins us to share his thoughts on clinicians' main concerns about community-acquired bacterial pneumonia, or CABP, for the future. Let's listen in. So as more bacteria become treatment-resistant, more treatment limitations can be realized. Uh, What are clinicians' concerns for the future of treating CABP? Yeah, so this is always a real great question is, you know, what are some of our future concerns? And I think what we've really seen, and, you know, there is obviously lots of antimicrobial resistance among organisms. The ones in community-acquired bacterial pneumonia that concern us are predominantly the macrolides, so azithromycin, chlorothromycin, and then obviously the tetracycline class, so in this case, tetracycline and doxycycline, because, um, you know, to a lesser extent then is obviously the the, uh, fluoroquinolones. In general, um, you know, because of some of the limitations of the fluoroquinolones, many of us like to lean on the macrolides and or doxycycline as frontline therapy when we look at monotherapy. However, you know, in parts of our in parts of our country, we certainly have high resistance rates. In general, uh, macrolide resistance for pneumococcus, for example, is above 25% um, throughout the country. That then means, you know, that's an agent you're generally not going to want to use for monotherapy when those rates hit 25% or higher, based on what the guidelines say. Doxycycline, it might be higher than 25% in some regions of the East Coast. It's about 15% here in California where I live. So, you know, having that ability to have uh, to have good, adequate monotherapy when you have this resistance obviously becomes a concern. And this is really where these newer agents are actually sort of trying to make their mark is, okay, we want to get away with monotherapy. We want that monotherapy not to be a fluoroquinolone, or for example, the patient may have a beta-lactam allergy. In those cases, you know, having these newer agents are, are really going to play a role, whether it's a matocycline or lefamulin. And I think that's, um, you know, sort of the little, little bit that the guidelines mentioned is, um, you know, newer agents are always hard when you have guidelines. Um, guidelines want to have long-term established data. And if you have a newer agent, it's a little harder to sort of throw them in high and high ranking in the guidelines, which the guidelines acknowledged, but basically said, hey, we need more data, but these may be real reasonable options. And I think this idea of um, the future of resistance is where these newer agents are going to kind of make their mark. Um, so other treatment limitations might include medication allergies or inadequate penetration in lung tissues or undesirable adverse effects. How might these challenges be overcome via new treatment options? Yeah, so that's a great question. So and our patients are never straightforward, right? So they often will have um, a beta-lactam allergy, a cephalosporin allergy. They might have a contraindication of fluoroquinolone, whether they've had a prior C. diff infection, they, you know, uh, they may be worried about tendon rupture, they might have diabetes, and you're worried about hypoglycemia, or, you know, aortic history of aortic dissection, whatever the reason may be, that then makes things a bit harder for us. And again, you can imagine if you look at the guidelines for a patient who um, obviously is 
It has comorbidities as we talked about before. And say, for example, they um, have a beta-lactam allergy and they can't tolerate a beta-lactam. So that leaves amoxicillin clavulanate out. Um, and because of whatever reason, maybe they have diabetes or they were recently hospitalized and had a C. diff infection, you want to avoid the fluoroquinolones. And I will tell you here at UC Davis, we're very fluoroquinolone avoidant, like many places. That's a big cornerstone of our stewardship is the limit fluoroquinolone use. I mean, if we have to use them, we do, but we really try not to. So again, if you're not going to use a fluoroquinolone and you're not going to use you know, a, a beta-lactam, that doesn't leave you a whole lot of options. So that then leaves you monotherapy initially with azithromycin or doxycycline. And when you have comorbidities and you have resistance rates as high as they are, those are not great options. And the guidelines really do a nice job of mentioning that, hey, you know, in patients with comorbidities, monotherapy with azithromycin or monotherapy with doxycycline is really may not be a good choice. We don't have a lot of data in those cases. And I think that's where these new treatment options will come in because they spent a lot of time in the clinical trials for these newer agents, uh, amatocycline and lefamulin is an example, really focusing in on patients with comorbidities, looking at monotherapy and comparing that monotherapy to a fluoroquinolone and showing that they're, you know, at least their outcomes were no different in, you know, phase three clinical trials. So that's really where these new treatment options may have that niche is where you don't want to use a fluoroquinolone for whatever reason, you can't use a beta-lactam, which are the, really the standard therapy and the guidelines. These will then have a nice place. Um, and then what are some, uh, what are the clinicians concerns about treating atypical pathogens? Yeah. So atypical pathogens obviously play a role. Usually if we're in looking at admitted patients uh, and inpatient, whether it's ICU or non-ICU, um, again, the atypical pathogens are not as common unless you're talking about Legionella. But on the outpatient side, atypical pathogens really um, have a much more of a presence, particularly in the middle-aged to younger individuals, whether it's mycoplasma or chlamydia. So I think we obviously have some concerns about those atypicals. Um, I, you know, when we often see our patients, particularly if they're that middle-aged younger group, we have no idea per se whether this is mycoplasma, chlamydia, or it's going to be pneumococcus. Again, um, the guidelines don't recommend hunting these down very aggressively. So in those cases, we're going to treat and cover both agents. So if you're going to do monotherapy with doxycycline or macrolide, you're covering the atypicals. Same thing if it's a fluoroquinolone. If you're doing dual therapy, you're going to start with amoxicillin. We sort of have to add in that atypical coverage. But again, that's reserved to middle-aged, younger individuals, non-hospitalized, whether we're talking about mycoplasma or chlamydia, Legionella, different story. If they're hospitalized or older, that's going to play a bigger role. But I think there's some concern, but I wouldn't say it's as concerning as um, pneumococcus or uh, H. flu coverage that's appropriate. Okay. Um, and then what are financial concerns? What financial concerns surround the future of CABP treatment and or management? Yeah, so the, the financial concerns are always a bit tricky. So, you know, what we want and, you know, one of the cornerstones of treating any infection, honestly, is that our patients have access to, you know, the antimicrobial that we want to use, particularly if it's on the outpatient side. We want them to have access to the antimicrobial. That antimicrobial should be administered as soon as possible and obviously has to have a good half-life, good penetration, um, be available to our patients and, you know, not be onerous for them to have it, again, whether it's IV or oral. Now, the thing that's great is when we look at things like amoxicillin pavulani, or even to a degree doxycycline azithromycin, they're generally generic. And some of the fluoroquinolones are generic as well. So they tend to be less expensive um, for our patients and are often covered by insurance if they are insured. The problem is, um, you know, those agents may not be the ones we sort of chose and what we wanted to use as well. So, you know, these newer agents are, are great. They're fitting some of the roles, um, fitting some of the holes, excuse me, in areas where we normally didn't want to use a fluoroquinolone as monotherapy, for example. And they're sort of developing 
having a role. But, you know, when you have newer agents, they obviously are priced a little bit differently. They may or may not be covered by insurance. So I think making sure that we have access to these agents and our patients can get them quickly, I think is really key. And I think that that's really the sort of important point is to streamline an avenue where if we choose not to use, um, you know, for example, on amoxicillin base because of a beta-lactam allergy. We don't want to use a fluoroquinolone. We just have to make sure that we have easy access to these alternative agents and that our insurance companies, for example, will allow us to quickly do that without having to fill out a tar over multiple days. Once you start stretching that antimicrobial out over a few days, um, now the patient is non-compliant, doesn't have access. That leads to admissions. That leads to, you know, failures in therapy. That leads to excess costs. All the stuff we talked about, you know, this podcast one, so I think that's really where, you know, having that, that's where the future of our concerns are, is just making it easy for our patients to get access to those newer treatments. Absolutely. Um, and then finally, uh, in your opinion, what are your concerns or hopes for the future of CABP treatment? So, you know, a lot of my concerns slash hopes, I think they're kind of the same, is that, um, you know, the guidelines are great. The guidelines didn't change a ton between 2007, 2019. Um, the beautiful thing is that the length of therapy is five days. The other beautiful thing is that most of the recommended therapies are largely unchanged. So that's a good thing. And I think that's a really great hope. I think what lies in the concern there is that the guidelines don't cover every patient we see. And there are certain patients that are going to fall outside of the guidelines. And I think, you know, my hope for the future is that we make sure we have options readily and easily available for us to fill those um, or for us to cover those patients who fall outside of the guidelines. So basically fill that donut hole overall. And I think that's, um, I think that's really probably the biggest key for the most part, our diagnostic options, our length of therapy, um, recognition of, you know, complicated community acquired pneumonia that needs further workup and prolonged treatment. Those have all actually gone really well and worked well. Um, right now it's just really around the, the treatment options of making sure that all of our patients, you know, in our clinic and that we see in our practice have access to all of the agents that we want to be able to use. And that's always a challenge for all infections that we have. But I think my, you know, my hope is that, you know, we're going to have nice adequate options. That's really going to make our job a lot easier and hopefully at least reduce the burden overall of community acquired pneumonia. Absolutely. Absolutely. Something that just came to mind. Um, I'm not sure if there are any in development now, but in your opinion, do you feel that um, the development of new antibiotics could potentially reduce the burden of CABP or any infection, I guess? Yeah. So this is always a great question is if you come up with a newer antimicrobial, is there a way to decrease the burden of um, that particular disease? And the answer to a degree is yes, but it it depends what you mean by burden. So, you know, if we have a newer antimicrobial, our rates of community acquired pneumonia or the diagnosis of community acquired pneumonia may not change. However, um, if we look at using these agents and their, you know, oral options, they cover patients with comorbidities, they, we have easy access to them. That may make us as physicians and providers feel a little bit more comfortable not admitting a patient or discharging them early. That then decreases the burden overall. So I think really when we look at the future of decreasing the burden of community acquired pneumonia, it's again, it's around preventing an admission or sending someone home early from their admission and reducing that access to healthcare, which we kind of talked about in that podcast one, but is probably the area where we're going to need a lot of um, 
you know, a lot of help in, um, in, in reducing that burden. So it's really not so much in reducing the amount of cases that's more around vaccination and prevention. But once we have these newer options, they could really provide us a shorter, you know, uh, improved treatment at home on that short course therapy. So. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Sandrock. And for our listeners, you can find more resources on CABP on Consultant 360 and on the page below. Thank you for listening.